I bring greetings from our church in uh, uh, Kirkland, um, and I will uh, pass those greetings back to them as well. It's always good to meet brothers and sisters in the Lord that I haven't met before, so thank you again for having me. Um, If you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Habakkuk. Um, It's a smaller book. It's one of the smallest books in the Bible, but not the smallest. Habakkuk, I will be preaching this morning from the first uh, four verses of this book. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, and then we will ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Habakkuk chapter 1. I will be reading from the New King James Version, by the way. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we do come before you on this day, this Lord's Day, this one day in seven which you, in your creative wisdom, have set aside for the good of your people, knowing our spiritual needs better than we. We do pray, Father, that this morning uh, that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word, that you would implant it in our hearts, and that you would reveal yourself to your people, cause our minds to consider uh, the things that you have for us this morning from your word. We pray that your spirit would be active and present among us this morning, knowing indeed that if he is not, we are not hearing a sermon, but we are just hearing the ramblings of a mere man. We desire to hear from you, O Lord. Uh, Please speak to and minister to your people this morning. We do pray these things in the name of our Lord, our God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Whenever some natural disaster uh, befalls uh, this nation, invariably, throughout my lifetime at least, Uh, We see and hear people crying out one to another, where was God when this happened? Where was God 21 years ago today on 9-11? Where was God during the shooting at Columbine High School? Where was God during all of the subsequent mass shootings that we have seen since then? Why would God allow Hurricane Katrina to devastate the Gulf Coast? Where was God when ISIS was devastating the Middle East and slaughtering and enslaving Christians? We hear this question being asked on major television networks, on radio talk shows, and on podcasts everywhere. And we read it in major newspapers, major news magazines, and internet blogs. And if we were to go back in history 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, or even 2,600 years ago or so when Habakkuk was writing this book, we would find accounts of men crying out to God in every generation with these same types of questions. Why is God allowing this to happen? God, where are you? 
how come you're acting in this way or not acting in this way? It is these same questions which the prophet Habakkuk was asking the Lord in these four opening verses of this book. God, where are you? And what are you doing? And why won't you answer me? There is truly nothing new under the sun. So this question is asked by the media and people all throughout Christian, Christian, God-fearing nations uh, from generation to generation every time major tragedy strikes. But I've noticed something interesting over the last couple of years. Let me ask you this question. Have any of you heard any major news outlets asking the question, where is God and what is God doing in allowing the corona pandemic to take place over the last couple of years? That question has seemed to disappear from our country for some reason. That, I think, is a sign of judgment of the Lord in removing his hand of restraint uh, upon our nation. This question, this turning to God in time of national crisis seems to have vanished. And that silence, to me, is, is almost deafening. There are indeed many similarities between Habakkuk's complaints against God here and the complaints that we often at least used to hear frequently in the media But there are also many differences. The biggest difference by far is that when Habakkuk cried out to the Lord with confusion and with frustration to God, asking God, where are you and what are you doing? God actually answered him in a way that he doesn't answer us in today's day and age. And this is essentially what this book is. Habakkuk raises a complaint to God, or raises a complaint against God, essentially, asking him where he is and what he is doing in the midst of the the moral decay of the nation of Judah, where Habakkuk lives, and God replies to his prophet. Habakkuk replies to God's reply, and he Uh, He questions God's answer because it's confusing to him. It seems unjust and and doesn't make sense. And then God replies to Habakkuk again. And then Habakkuk, once his complaints against the Lord have all been answered, he responds at the end of this short book, it's only three chapters, with a psalm of joyful faith in God's goodness, God's grace, and God's sovereign justice even though God's answer that he gave him was absolutely terrible news. It vividly describes the process that believers go through when we are wrestling with our ideas about how it is that God should respond when we ourselves as as individuals or as a church or even as a nation, when we face crisis, when when we face despair, uh, when we face suffering, and the, the process that Christians go through in coming to terms with the way that God, in his sovereign wisdom, chooses to respond. Because let's face it, oftentimes God does not respond to our pain and suffering the way that we want him to. One could also describe this book 
uh, this short little book as, as Habakkuk's personal prayer journal, giving us insight into the personal prayer life of an Old Testament prophet, which, which can be very helpful to us, I believe, uh, as we ask the question of ourselves, how should we pray to God, especially when we are in times of suffering or confusion? But more important are the lessons that we learn from God's responses to Habakkuk and Habakkuk's inspired reflections upon God's response. If you're anything like I was 15 or 20 years ago, uh, you may be thinking to yourself, the book of Habakkuk? Uh, I don't know anything about that book, but it sure doesn't sound very practical. It's just one of the minor prophets tucked away somewhere near the end of the first half of the Old Testament, which isn't nearly as practical as the New Testament, let's face it, right? But the truth is, the practical benefits of this little uh, minor prophetical book is enormous. It's a book that I personally believe every uh, Christian counselor ought to be very familiar with, simply because it is so incredibly practical in helping Christians to deal with traumatic frustrations of living in a sinful, fallen world. The prophet here begins with his own personal situation uh, that he sees or finds himself in, in Judah, and then he finds himself throughout this book articulating timeless questions which have been asked by men and women from every generation of human history. Questions about uh, the problem of the existence and, and prevalency of evil and the character of God, questions about the oppressiveness of unrestrained violence and injustice that's present in the world, especially when the righteous seem to suffer while the wicked seem to prosper. And why does God seem to be content to remain silent and allow such wickedness to grow and to flourish and to continue? These questions are difficult for us from our, our limited human perspective to understand. And we often find ourselves frustrated in trying to understand them and sometimes frustrated with God for not acting the way we think he ought. And these questions uh, that Habakkuk are, are wrestling with are not mere academic theological curiosities. Okay, what do I mean by that? Academic theological curiosities. So we could, for example, sit around the dinner table and we could ask this question. Why do you think uh, a sovereign, benevolent, loving God would allow such a thing as uh, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II? We could ask that question. We could have a discussion, discussion about it. We could offer some some theologically sound reasons for why God would permit such a tragedy. And then we could eat dessert. We could go home. We could turn on the TV, fill our heads with all sorts of trivialities, and then crawl into bed, hardly thinking twice about the dinner table discussion. That discussion would be a mere academic theological curiosity. Say it three times really fast. Would your discussion about why God would permit the Holocaust to occur be different if you were having that discussion while lying on a bunk bed next to someone else in Auschwitz? 
while living through that nightmare yourself, not knowing whether or not tomorrow you're going to be headed to the gas chamber or the next day or die of starvation or some other cruel form of punishment? Would your, would your conversation be different? Asking where is God and why is he allowing this? It would be very different. Theological curiosity is, is not what Habakkuk is doing in this book because he was living through this situation that he is praying to God about. The opening words of this book reveal that to us. So other, other prophetical books start out with phrases like the words of Jeremiah uh, or the vision of Isaiah. That's how they start. But Habakkuk starts out with this introduction the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. If you're reading from the ESV, it says the oracle which the prophet Habakkuk saw. But that Hebrew word there is an oracle from God. It's a word of God given to his prophet that contains ominous threats of coming judgment and despair. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. That's how it starts. And as we sit and listen to this sermon, we have a choice. We can listen and think about what was going on in this passage of Scripture as a mere theological curiosity, hoping to sharpen our theological understanding of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, or we can listen and realize that this is not the story of Habakkuk some 2,600 years ago. This is, this is your story. This is my story. And this is a story that repeats itself throughout history on national scales and on individual scales as well. This is God revealing his character to us in a way that is beneficial to his people. Intended to give us comfort in times of struggle and encourage us to turn to him even when we feel like he has indeed forgotten all about us. The questions which Habakkuk raises, they greatly troubled his very heart and his soul. And he wrestled within himself and with God, trying to understand why God would allow such wickedness that he saw and such injustice that he saw and such violence that he saw growing and growing in Judah to flourish and be unrestrained. Even his own name, Habakkuk, alludes to this as his name literally means to embrace. But it's not the kind of embrace that you give a loved one or a close friend. It's referring to the kind of embrace that one uh, Greco-Roman wrestler gives to another as, as they are wrestling with one another, trying to hold his opponent with all of his might and trying to fight against him with all of his willpower and physical strength. That's the kind of embrace that the word Habakkuk means. It's the same type of embrace which the patriarch Jacob engaged in back in Genesis chapter 32 when he wrestled with that mysterious figure all night long and even refused to loosen his embrace after his hip had been dislocated. Can you imagine how painful that would be? And like Jacob, Habakkuk was a man who wrestled 
with God. And this book is a book about his prayer wrestling with God and these difficult concepts. Jacob's wrestling match was physically strenuous and physically painful. Habakkuk's wrestling match was spiritually strenuous, but it was also just as spiritually painful as Jacob's. The first complaint that the prophet raises against God in verses 2 through 4. It begins with the prophet's first cry out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? It's obvious that this, this prayer journal does not start at the beginning, isn't it? The prophet had been praying about this burden that he had on, him, on his heart for some time. And his opening complaint that's recorded for us is why is his confusion and perplexion and frustration and perhaps even anger at God for not answering his consistent prayers. How long will I cry out and you're not going to respond? It doesn't begin at the beginning. And our English translations don't really quite convey the bluntness of the Hebrew here, which Habakkuk expresses. It's, it's not so much as a question that he's presenting to the Lord in prayer. It's, it's more of a blunt accusation against Jehovah himself. It's as if Habakkuk is saying, Hey God, what are you doing? You are not hearing my cries for help. That's what you're supposed to be doing. What are you doing? How often do we pray to God with with blunt honesty like that? Do you feel guilty if you get on your knees and you just pour your heart out to him without uh, sugarcoating it with all of this Christianese, these and nows, and make it sound better? That's not, how, that's not how the prophet prays here. That's not how David often prays in the Psalms. In Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? That's how David starts out in, in Psalm 13. It starts off with a prayer like that. I think God wants us to be able to come into his presence and to pour out our heart and to pray honestly and openly with him. And that's the beginning of a journey here. Habakkuk was, was deeply concerned when he's praying these things. He's deeply concerned with the national sins and moral perversity, as I said before, in the nation of Judah. And he had gone to the Lord often in prayer, asking God to put a stop to this moral wickedness and decay, likely asking God to either bring revival or bring judgment to put an end to the wickedness and to turn the hearts of God's people back to him. But not only did God not grant the deliverance Habakkuk had been praying for, God had not answered his prophet at all. And Habakkuk poured his heart out before the Lord, and he felt like he was being given the cold shoulder. Or so it seemed for a long time. We need to remember that it's not like Habakkuk was praying to God for, uh, for a red sports car or a red sports chariot, if they had things like that back then. 
He was asking God to grant repentance to his own people and to turn their hearts back to him for the sake of God's own glory. That's what he was praying for. That's what he wanted to see happen. He was right to pray to God Almighty for the salvation of his people, and yet God had not answered. This is something that we can relate to, but only in part. We can relate because many of us, I believe, have earnestly prayed for things which indeed would glorify God and further the purposes of his kingdom and not ourselves, which, such as the salvation of a close family member, only to see years and even decades go by where God has not answered our requests, and we don't know why. We prayed for spiritual revival in the church at large and in our nation without seeing God answer those requests in a way that we would picture in our mind's eye as glorifying the Lord. In fact, what we do see when we look around, is the moral decay of our nation and the moral decay of the church at large becoming more and more like the culture in which we live. And we wonder why. At least I wonder why. God, what are you doing and why are you allowing our nation to be circling the drain as it is? And the church seemed to be circling as well, only slightly slower. (laughs) But on another level, we cannot relate to Habakkuk's bewilderment and frustration about God's failure to respond to his prayer because Habakkuk, unlike any of us, was an Old Testament prophet, right? God revealed himself to the Old Testament prophets in a way different than us. When you and I are seeking the will of God in our lives, we are to pray in earnest and then seek out God's will in the scriptures. But the prophets of old would pray and God would reveal himself to them directly in visions and dreams and sending him an angel or even the angel of the Lord to speak directly to them in ways that I can't fathom or imagine. Apparently God had not given Habakkuk an answer in the way he was used to receiving answers from the Lord. And he was compelled to pray about the process of prayer itself, asking God why he has stopped speaking to him here. He goes on. And he begins to reveal some of the specific things which he had been praying about and he still is praying about. And his complaints, I believe, if we pay attention to them and and think about what he's saying, his complaints begin to resonate with believers from every generation, including ours today. He writes this, I even cry out to you violence and you will not save. And then skipping a phrase, he repeats his complaint concerning violence, saying, For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. As he observed the moral and spiritual corruption of the nation, he was not only asking God to deliver his people from thieves and liars, but from physical violence, from strife. Israelites fighting amongst themselves and murders. Jerusalem had basically become some form of a chop zone with lawlessness, with violence and plundering going on without much repercussion at all for the evildoers. Some 2,600 years after Habakkuk wrote this complaint, has anything changed much in the world today? 
Do we not still live in a world of violence? At any given point in today's modern world, there are somewhere between 25 and 30 wars going on somewhere on this planet. Yet most of us in this room are not even aware of more than one or two. We've become blind to war. But even when we look within the borders of our own nation, we see violence everywhere, do we not? On our streets, especially our downtown streets, in our schools, in movie theaters, at convenience stores, on the highway, in gas stations and banks, violence is everywhere. And we seem to have become accustomed to it. We have BLM, we have Antifa, we have the moral corruption being taught with the LGBTQ, etc. Critical race theory, these things are tearing our country apart morally. And we are moving further and further away from God. Violence within the home has also become a pandemic. Husbands abusing their wives. Sometimes wives abusing their husbands. Parents abusing their children. We hear stories of physical and sexual abuse all the time. There is no safe haven from the violent and wicked in our culture today. People are not even safe in their own mother's womb. Our culture in which we live is sinister and it is wicked and it has an utterly evil understanding of the sanctity of human life. And except for the victims, most people in our society seem to treat this as sad, but relatively trivial. Because they hear about it so often. We become desensitized. It's old news. And in today's fast-paced world, old news is really no news at all. And it takes something as serious as a mass shooting before people today even pay attention to it. We are, step by step, becoming more and more accustomed to unrestrained moral degeneration in this so-called Christian nation in which we live. Habakkuk's complaint continues, therefore, he says, the law is powerless. The law itself is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Perverse judgments proceed. So when moral degeneracy takes a hold of a nation, it doesn't matter how good or how pure the law itself is that governs that nation. Even though the nation of Judah at that time was supposedly governed by the perfect and holy law of God. The wicked controlled the seats of judgment, and the law became simply powerless to protect the righteous and the widows and the needy. And the same is true today. The wicked hearts of evil men will always find ways of perverting justice, of calling evil good and calling good evil. It is our justice system which fervently protects the rights of pornographers to promote their spiritual poison. And it rebukes and often threatens parents who correct and discipline their children. Parents are scared to spank their kids out in public these days. 
Our public schools inculcate unbelief and skepticism about the existence of God, teaches homosexuality and other deep sexual deviancy like gender choice is perfectly normal and should be celebrated while completely silencing any biblical perspective on such matters, on anything actually, all in the name of impartiality. Is justice taking place in our nation today? Justice becomes perverse when the wicked surround the righteous. When I, when I was in undergrad uh, school down in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a court case uh, that went on at that time. I won't tell you how long ago. It was a while. Uh, I heard about this on the radio. The, the case was there was this man who was trying to break into uh, a, a family's house, and he was trying to break in through the skylight by climbing up on the roof. That was his uh, genius plan. And as he was trying to break in, he slipped and he fell through the skylight. And he landed on the kitchen counter. And a large kitchen knife, which had been, had been left on the counter, somehow, the way in which he landed, the knife had severely wounded him when he fell. Now, that part of the story is almost poetic justice, right? Sometimes justice takes place. But then, this would-be robber sued the homeowners for reckless endangerment because they had left this kitchen knife on the counter before leaving their home that day. And he actually won the lawsuit, gaining thousands of dollars from this family. I heard there was an appeal process going on. I really hope that the family won the appeal. But the wicked surround the righteous, and when that happens, you can't count on justice taking place because those in the seats of power themselves are evil or very strongly influenced by it. And everywhere we look, we see good being called evil. And we see evil being called good and celebrated. In the Times magazine, back in August of 1996, which is when I was under undergrad, um, I was doing research for a paper in school, and I ran across this advertisement asking readers to consider becoming official godparents of a baby white rhinoceros named, I think I'm saying this right, Mbolifu, that had been born recently in the country of Zaire. And the advertisement reads like this, or read like this, I quote, uh, Before Mbolifu's arrival, there were just 29 northern white rhinos alive in the wild. You can imagine the excitement when a tiny baby calf was spotted from the air, moving slowly through the grass with her mother. In March this year, a pregnant female was shot and brutally butchered by poachers. The birth of Mbulifu goes some way toward compensating for that tragedy. Now, readers uh, from this, readers of this advertisement were being asked to join uh, this scheme to become uh, godparents. Uh, of this baby white rhinoceros to help protect her life for just $2 a month. Um, And in the article, it also mentioned that Mbulifu means gift from heaven. That's what they named this baby white rhino. Now, I'm not saying, not saying, that supporting organizations who protect endangered species is a bad thing at all, okay? I mention this ad because ironically and sadly, the opposite page from where I read this ad, was the article that I found from my research paper. 
It was an article written about a fairly well-to-do couple who had become pregnant with twins. And the mother of these twins wanted a child, but she wanted only one. And she felt it would be dangerous for her psychological well-being to attempt to take care of two newborns at the same time. I was doing a paper on abortion. I believe this was, article was written about the first time that an abort, when an abortion had been performed on one twin, but not the other. And the article was not slightly at all concerned about the moral atrocity that took place during this surgery. But it was praising the advancement of cutting-edge medical technology, which now allows us to have the freedom to make such choices. Hooray for us that our culture has become so technologically advanced that we can now murder human babies with such precision. But what a tragedy on the opposite page when a baby white rhino dies at the hands of a hunter. Our culture at large considers a human fetus biological waste, nothing more than uh, a tumor growing inside a mother. And a baby white rhino in Zaire is Mbulifu, a gift from heaven above. The stark contrast, it, it tears my heart apart. In our own society today, we see violence against unborn babies. We see violence against women and children, violence against the few by the many, violence against the weak by the strong, violence by those in authority against those unable to resist, violence which goes unchecked and unpunished, In the words of Salman Rushdie, violence today is hot and it's what people want. (laughs) And like Habakkuk, we live in a violent world. Like Habakkuk, we may be praying to God, saying, where are you? Why are you allowing this to take place? Why are you not answering the prayers of your people? Also, like Habakkuk, we need to reach a place in our walk with the Lord where we too can echo his words at the end of this book or his writing, that psalm I spoke of at the beginning in chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, when he says, even though I see all of this violence and injustice in Judah, And even though I know all of the terrible judgments that you are about to bring upon Judah, which God tells him about when he replies, even though I know that we are basically going to be put under siege, carried off into captivity, most of us are going to die, the rest will be slaves for years on end in a foreign land, even though I know all of this, and I see all of this, and I have this burden, I will rejoice in the Lord. For the Lord God is my strength. But first, before we can get to that point of being able to rejoice 
in the God of our strength and in the God of our salvation. Even in the midst of a a holocaust. Even in the midst of something terrible when we're surrounded by violence and judgment and injustice. We need to begin where Habakkuk begins here in the opening verses of this book. And we need to feel the weight of his burden. Do we have that same burden for our own culture today? Are we praying with such fervency and openness and honesty to the Lord, asking God to put an end to the moral degeneracy and the violence and the injustice that we see everywhere, growing and growing Too many Christians today, I believe, start at the end rather than the beginning. They see the violence and they say, yes, I wish God would stop it, but I will rejoice in the, in the Lord. And they skip straight to that end without wrestling with the burden coming before it because we're desensitized to it. We don't like feeling that burden. It's uncomfortable We want to sound like a good Christian who always praises the Lord. But when we do that, we don't sound like David in the 13th Psalm. And we don't sound at all like Habakkuk. We shouldn't be afraid to pour out our heart to the Lord. And if we don't feel a burden for the culture in which we live, seeing the moral degeneracy circling the drain, there's a problem with us. We should be praying that God would undesensitize us, if that's a word to what we see in the world around us. Sometimes Christians today trivialize the burden of living in a violent and morally degenerative, depraved culture, and we just skip to the, but I will rejoice in the Lord part. It's so easy to do. Sometimes we make light of sin, saying it isn't really that bad. Other times, Christians today simply bury their heads in the shallow sands of the Christian evangelical subculture that they choose to live in. I grew up in a bubble like that, so I understand it. We bury our heads in that sand so that we don't have to look around and see the sin and perversity that permeates every part of our society because we don't like that burden. But the truth is that we cannot truly learn to rejoice in the God of our salvation until we really know what it is that we are being saved from. Wrestling with these burdens on our knees. Pouring our hearts out to the Lord. Sometimes for years helps us to understand the salvation that we've been given in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Brothers and sisters, I I believe that it is obvious to all of us here that God is, even now, removing his hand of restraint upon the sin of our country. And when we look back through the corridors of history, biblical history as well as secular history, and we, we see God doing that in other nations, what follows that? In every single case, what follows it? 
One of two things happened. God removes his, his hand of restraint on the sin of nations in order to let them pursue the lust of their hearts. And he does this in order to increase the darkness so that when he reveals the brightness of his own glory, that it will pierce that darkness with more glorious splendor. And it comes about in one of two ways. It either, God reveals the brightness of his glory and splendor through widespread repentance and revival. Or through utter judgment and destruction. It's one of those two things. Rarely does does a country who's fallen so far down into moral depravity climb back up on its own slowly and gradually. Revival or judgment, historically, is what happens. I think we as Christians should be aware of that. That's how God has operated throughout history. That is who our God is. As an American, I hope and I pray that God will reveal the splendor of his glory to this nation with a great, magnificent revival. But as a Christian, I know that if he chooses to glorify himself through judgment and destruction, I will yet rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And I hope you would join me in that desire. Would you pray with me? How long, O Lord, will will you not hear the cries of your people today and the burdens of our hearts? Father, we see the wicked prosper. We see violence. We see rampant blasphemy without second thought. We see evil. We see murder. We see so much, so much evil being celebrated in our culture today. Father, it makes our hearts sick. We can only imagine what your heart thinks of such things. But we, as your people, ask you, Father, to put an end to it. Whether it be through a revival, which is our desire, Father, or through judgment, which may be coming, Father, we pray that you would put an end to it. We pray, Father, that you would reveal the splendor of your glory once again to the people of this nation and around the world. Father, we have a burden in our own hearts on the national level. Many of us in this room have burdens on our own heart on a more personal level, wondering why you allow certain things to happen in our lives that we don't understand. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts as we wrestle with difficult questions that we have of you and understanding your will. But we pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word as we wait for you to yet again reveal yourself to us in human history when our Lord and Savior returns one day. Father, be with us. Comfort us, strengthen us, encourage us as we wrestle as people seeking to honor and glorify you 
in a morally perverse culture. Ask us to do these things, we pray, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.